Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 443. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please do go visit evergreenpodcast.com. I'd also like to make a shout out and thanks for putting up a five-star review to the show to Storywork, who did that on Apple Podcasts. This week's interview is with Marshall Mosher. Marshall's a world record holding action sport polyathlete, tech futurist, and host of the Inside the Adventure podcast. He's also the founder and CEO of Vestigo that builds performance enhancing experiences that train your team to embrace innovation and navigate change through a mindset of courage. In this conversation with Marshall, we explore his world of adventure sports, the challenge of running up to the edge of one's limits. We look at virtual reality, how it can be used to create meaningful learning experiences for businesses, especially when working remotely. We also look at what the future holds for VR tech. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please do consider to drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show with Marshall. Marshall Mosher, great to have you on this. I see that you are stuck in the middle of nowhere nearby Salt Lake City. It's wonderful to have you piped in. Technology is a wonderful thing, is it not, Marshall? In your own it's words, great you, to be here. how would you like to describe yourself? Yeah, so, uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, in terms of describing me, I really love being at the intersection of adventure, technology, and entrepreneurship. If you kind of think of those things as three points of a triangle, the closer to the middle of that triangle, the happier I tend to be. So I'm actually, like you mentioned, being in the middle of nowhere in Salt Lake City, um, you know, streaming in from my uh, remote office camper van at the edge of a paragliding site called Point of the Mountain, uh, where I've been um, working remotely from uh, from here for about a month, being able to get uh, some paragliding training in the morning and evenings, work during the day, and actually train for a big paragliding competition that's starting on Monday. So I'm excited for that. Excellent. So you are you are an athlete of many varieties. If you had to, well, you could describe some of the sports that you like to to do. What what is what is the thing that connects the sports that you like to practice? Yeah, so I I love all different types of adventure sports specifically. Of course, I did a lot of traditional sports growing up, uh, but there's something about the way that adventure sports gets us outside of our comfort zone with real life consequences in a way that allows us to experience the world in a new way. Um, and the big thing with me both personally and what I love as well as what I like to do professionally in my work is that process of getting outside of the things I'm comfortable with outside of my comfort zone, trying something new and going through the learning phase. Um, so I really like trying a lot of new sports, getting to the point where I go through the progression of just purely sucking at it, getting to the point where I'm decently good, intermediate, advanced, uh, and then you know learning something else and kind of constantly being back in that beginner phase to use that as an, as an opportunity to kind of keep pushing my comfort zone. And of course, that's what's, uh, what I love doing with my uh, profession as well and building virtual reality adventure experiences to help teams practice getting outside of their comfort zone and how that relates to leadership development and team building. But uh, that's sort of the general theme. But in terms of the sports that I love, probably the most, uh, paragliding, kiteboarding, and whitewater kayaking are probably my three favorite at the moment with paragliding and kiteboarding being the ones I've really focused on over the past year. Uh, I guess the common theme there is, is riding the wind. Um, and I really mm -hmm. love aviation. So um, in your bio, I was reading that you are a world record holder. Um, how uh, Describe to us the world record. Yes, yeah, so we've got a couple of silly world records. Uh, first person to uh, foot launch a paraglider with a unicycle that's a fun one um <laughs> but uh one, one of the ones i'm more proud of is um uh the uh maximum or the the largest number of paragliding flights in a single day so the way that that is um uh really the only way that that's broken is with a paramotor so you have two kinds of paragliding you have free flight paragliding where 
all you have is your wing or glider above you. Those terms are kind of interchangeable uh, and yourself and you ride the you know, rising updraft uh, of wind called a thermal or if you have you know, wind blowing into an object and it rises, it's mechanical lift. And then you have a motor where you've probably seen videos of uh, someone with a glider above them and a big fan looking thing on their back. Well, with the motor, you can, uh, you can take off, do a circle, land, put your wing down, that counts as one flight and then keep doing that pretty much all day uh, to rack up as many flights as you can possibly get. Um, so that's- uh, Touching goes that's almost. The other one. Right, and me and my instructor are actually uh, trying to break the record again uh, and try to hit a thousand uh, in a single day. So we'll Love see it. if we can do that. Well, we, we share a couple of things in these last few comments. The first is I tried to uh, set a world record with a team, uh, but it was certainly, I, certainly not going to publicize and we weren't recognized for it. So, but we tried to do a lot of silly things to get on the record books. And then the other thing which we share is um, I've practiced 31 different racket sports. And what was fun for me has always, has not been about being great at any of them or breaking world records for that matter but always figuring out what is interesting in that sport. What is the challenge? And in rackets, it's more about, you know, where do you hit the ball? What stroke and all that kind of, and how do you win points and so on and so forth. And so it's sort of similar in terms of diving into what is the mojo? What is the thing that turns you on and makes it happen in that sport? Yeah, um, that's, that's a great question. I, I think it's different for for different sports, but uh, really tapping into that flow state feeling of you know heightened peak performance uh, when you really get into the zone. Um, that's that's one of my favorite you know, pieces of of uh, kind of commonalities of of different sports uh, that you tend to get in, in pretty much everything if you get to that point. So I want to talk about breaking comfort zones, and and you're obviously a robust athlete able to do things with your body uh, that a lot of people aren't. But I wonder how you, Marshall, have had experiences as you sort of do this and you start talking about it, how sometimes you're like, oh my God, what am I doing? Have there been moments like that where you actually legitimately put into question, what on earth am I doing in this situation? And how did you overcome that type of fear if it happened? <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I, I think that uh, the bar of those types of situations, you know, is constantly increasing with ex experience and skill level. Of course, you know, like for instance, with paragliding, uh, you know, someone might have that thought the first time they you know, they launch their paraglider by themselves and get in the air and realize, wow, you know, I'm by myself up here and no one's going to get me down but me. Uh, and then, you know, as you get more confident and comfortable, that that bar kind of changes. But um, one of the ones recently for me was this uh, advanced paragliding course called an SIV, which is a French acronym for incident in flight. Uh, usually you, um, a lot of advanced pilots do this at least on an annual basis, but it's this course where you're with an instructor, um, you have a, uh, a big lake and a boat and a tow rig that actually pulls you up into the air a few thousand feet, usually about you know, four or 5,000 feet. And then you detach from the tow rig and the instructor is sitting on the boat with binoculars and a radio, and they are telling you what to do to manipulate your wing in a way that you would hope it never does uh, to practice how to recover from that. Mm -hmm. And the first SIV is, is uh, a very common, terrifying experience for almost every pilot because it's the first time you're ever in these situations, pretty much stopping your wing from flying mm -hmm. in the air. And without really knowing what to do, that's it's pretty scary. So first time I did that was um, about six months ago, and uh, I did one of the maneuvers incorrectly and got mm. into what's called riser twist. And I, I posted it on social media for anyone who's interested in seeing. But essentially, the uh, you you fully stall the wing, practice this thing called full stalls, uh, and then instead of doing it correctly. Uh, mine uh, twisted up. It was only the third time I'd ever done it. So of course I was doing it wrong or at least not very good. And it just started twisting. And then when the wing is twisted relative to where you are, there's nothing you can do. Your, your brake inputs, you know, they're all, the lines are all twisted with the other lines, so they don't do anything. So it just gets locked into this, you know, what's called a nose down spiral um, 
uh, kind of maneuver where you're you're spinning out of the air uncontrollably, uh, pulling a lot of G's. There's nothing you can do. I had to throw my reserve, but I threw it poorly. So I actually ended up falling into the thing that's supposed to save me from that environment and uh, had to, I was all twisted up in my reserve lines. I had to kind of crawl out of that, get it above me. And uh, eventually it, it deployed correctly and slowed me down, but <clears throat> I was only about a thousand feet over the water at that point. And uh, that was definitely one of those situations um, mm. where I was I was thinking that for sure. But the important thing uh, from uh, kind of a learning perspective in what we're talking about kind of with you know mindset and getting outside of our comfort zone is I was so tempted to, and that was, this was the second day of a three-day course, by the way, I was so tempted <laughs> to just call in sick the next day. <laughs> like, you know, I'm not feeling great. <laughs> I don't know if I could get back I have there, a thing. But, I have a know, thing. <laughs> I got this thing I got to go to. Sorry. Um, so I, I had to, you know, make a decision and say, you know, if I, if I don't get back up there tomorrow and do the exact same maneuver again and, you know, practice it correctly, then I might never do it and be permanently scared. So I had to get back up, do the same thing. I did it correctly and didn't mess up the next time. Um, but it's, uh, it's less about what happens to us and more about, I think, our reaction to it and our ability mm. to push through that fear. That is the uh, important piece for me. Absolutely. And yet I'm also thinking, because you there's Marshall, the, the adventurer, and then there's Marshall, the guy who runs Vestigo and, and does this with companies and so on. But as an individual in doing what you do, I, I was talking to somebody who free dives over 50 meters, which, you know, mind boggles me, you know, people who can hold yeah. the breath for five seven only 20 meters there you go i <laughs> mean <20. laughs> so right and and uh and she was saying well there aren't many uh you know free dive re world record holders alive because they always go one step too far and and so the point is you know knowing all the same your limits and avoiding that extra adrenaline rush the kick that you're always trying to get to when you're in adventure so how do you deal with that limit? What's the narrative in Marshall's mind when he's tackling, where is my limit? 20 meters, 21? Can I not do 25? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, when, when you're pushing the edge, uh, you know, eventually you're going to find it, uh, which is pretty common, um, you know, common quote. So it's, it's one of those things where I, I try and know my limits and practice my limits in as safe of an environment as possible. So um, like for instance, uh, to use a whitewater kayaking analogy, because I haven't talked about that yet, there's there's two types of rapids. There's one that looks really big and scary, but is actually safe. And then there's one that looks really big and scary, but there's a lot of things going on underneath the water where if you come out of your boat for whatever reason, there's a high likelihood that you get stuck in some underwater feature and drown. So you can always, and they both might be the same skill level to paddle it, but one has much higher consequences. So I, I do try and uh, push my limits in environments where the consequence of failure of finding that limit uh, is, is minimized uh, instead of the environments where um, the consequences is much higher. Uh, doing these maneuvers in the paraglider in a course like an SIV course is another example of being able to find those limits of what you can do and what the glider can do in as safe of a condition as possible where the odds are stacked in your favor. Uh, you're over water. Um, you, uh, you have a life vest on. If you have to throw your reserve, you're going to come down in the water. You're not going to get hurt. Uh, even if for whatever reason you don't throw your reserve and you're, you're not free falling, you still land in water. So it's a softer landing. Um, and uh, obviously much better than having something like that happen over trees or over hard ground. So there's different ways to still be able to push those limits, but in a safer way. Mm, the smarter way. So um, right. <laughs> I wanted to get just uh, in terms of your background, Marshall, um, you also attended the Singularity University. So I was wondering, uh, how would you like to describe your experience of Singularity? And do you think it's something that everyone should do or anyone can do? Or maybe more specifically, who should attend Singularity in your mind? 
Yeah, Singularity was was one of the most impactful programs uh, that I've ever done for sure. I absolutely loved it, and the organization as a whole has has constantly been a, you know changing and evolving since when I went through it. So the program that I did doesn't exist in the form that I did it in. Um, so I, I can't talk to their their new programs, but I know that they are trying to make it more accessible and more scalable for a larger audience of people. Because the program that I did was uh, a once a year, 10 week program for 80 people you know, from all over the world. I think we had 40 or 42 different countries represented between the 80 people. So extremely uh, international, which was amazing. Um, but you know, 80 people once a year is, is not a lot of people that can go through the program. Highly impactful. One of the most incredible things I've done, but I think, uh, singularity wanted to make it more accessible for a larger group of people. So I can't speak to the new programs, but the program that I did, uh, was incredibly transformational for both me personally and my career trajectory. Um, at the time I had just graduated from the university of Georgia, uh, where I was originally studying to go to med school. I did a biology psychology psychology and economics major, really not knowing what I wanted to do, but with the plan to go to med school and, and realizing that I didn't love hospitals uh, about halfway through that program. Um, so that's why I added the econ component that came out when I went into business. And then I actually ended up doing a master's in public administration with a healthcare focus and uh, a lot of things that I realized I didn't want to do after, after doing it. But fortunately, we have this really amazing um, you know, state scholarship that that covers higher uh, education if you're a Georgia resident. So so it was free at least. Um, but by the end of the six years of doing you know, three majors and a master's and still not really knowing what I wanted to do, um, I took an entrepreneurship class in the very last semester of my hmm. uh, master's program that helped me to realize that that was the space that I really loved. And then Singularity was a great opportunity to build on top of that. Uh, at the time, um, the University of Georgia actually sent one graduate student from, from you know, across all of the graduate programs to Singularity, representing the University of Georgia every single year. Uh, and it was this um, kind of competition style scholarship. And I was lucky enough to get selected for that and go to Singularity. And that was really the first um, the first time that I got to be immersed in the you know, amazing tech and future focused you know area that is Silicon Valley with these incredible people um, that are you know leading all these different industries coming and you know being guest lecturers for us and it was also where I um, kind of discovered virtual reality uh, we got a chance to go to the Stanford VR lab uh, learn a bit more about what virtual reality would eventually become and that was where the idea for what we're doing with Vestigo was originally born in being able to utilize the first type of technology that can actually scale the impact of experiences uh, that the world has ever seen um, and use that for a bunch of different great benefits. But the, the main niche that we wanted to focus on was for remote team building and leadership development, being able to engage teams that were not physically together in person uh, and be able to build the same type of camaraderie, connection, relationships, and leadership development skills that uh, that you can do in person, but for remote teams. Since we kind of saw the trend of virtual reality increasing, as well as the trend of remote teams, uh, and saw a big opportunity with a big impact in that space. And Singularity was was the launching point for that. Hmm. All right. So let's start by as before we get into Vestigo itself talking a little bit about your viewpoint, your thirty six thousand feet. Uh, view from vantage point on corporate culture uh, and what is the problem that Vestigo is solving in this regard? Yeah, there's there's a couple problems uh, generally with corporate culture across all teams, regardless of whether they're, they're in-person or remote, uh, tends to be a bit of a lack of innovation, especially for larger companies uh, that are um, you know, more established and, and less uh, you know, startup tech focused. So the ability to be innovative, it, it really comes down to some key psychological factors, which there's a lot of pieces to it, but ultimately it boils down to your willingness to take a risk and your willingness to take a risk is directly related to your willingness to get outside of your comfort zone and to navigate the unknown and be willing to fail. So there's a lot of psychological pieces around 
getting outside of your comfort zone surrounded by what you control, be willing to navigate that unknown factor and, um, and the fear of the unknown. And we can actually help teach that psychologically and emotionally through adventure sports, which sounds like it's completely unrelated, but the, the key base, you know, basic psychological factors are the same. Um, for instance, um, when uh, in a real life adventure experience, if, if you're um, you know, going rock climbing or, or rappelling. Um, it's very physically easy, but mentally challenging because of that fear of heights. The fear of heights is a really powerful mental component that you can push through. And then being able to train your body, just like you train your muscles at a gym to overcome that natural biological fear of heights, um, can translate into overcoming other fears, especially the fear of the unknown and being willing to take more risks in the innovation process. So we try and connect the two both through traditional leadership development curriculum and facilitation, but also an experience that actually creates the emotional response that we can link to the content that uh, that we teach. And uh, we used to do that with in-person experiences before virtual reality was quite ready yet. And now we do that solely with virtual experiences where we replicate some of the world's most um, you know, daunting and, and incredible adventure environments in virtual reality, where we can still create the same emotional response and the same ability to push through that emotion, even though you're not physically there in person. Welcome change agents to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts. So in, in recap, there's a this notion of the difficulty of innovation and the fear of failure. Uh, are the These are the two things that you're really trying to solve within with vestigo exactly right and so let's talk about how to create an experience uh that helps satisfy that so when you're because i mean let's say you know let's jump off a precipice into a pool 30 meters below so we got the fear of heights all right whatever the the experience how do you craft an experience that is able to then to transfer into a team that actually, let's say Monday through Fridays, to use an abstract term, is working on making better carrots or whatever, you know, some other thing. And they're worried about the, the innovation or whatever. Here we are, we're on the top of a precipice or, or you're creating your experience. How do, you, how do you craft the experience that's transferable to make those better carrots uh, on, from Monday to Friday? Yeah, so it, it really doesn't matter what the company is doing. Uh, the the basic things that we're teaching um, kind of go deeper than what the company is doing, and and touch on the core kind of psychological problem that uh, that you know any any industry, regardless of what they do, does. So it's it's similar to if you had a keynote speaker come into a company to get everyone hyped up and excited, uh, but instead of just leaving the audience with some general inspiration, giving the audience the chance to actually put that inspiration into practice and, and um, you know, practice those themes uh, you know, psychologically and emotionally um, yourself. So for instance, the experience always has to start with a story. And one of the main ones that we created is this Everest crevasse crossing experience. So we, we kick it off with, um, you know, to describe the, what the environment looks like. Everyone is uh, in their own physical space somewhere, whether it's an office or a house or, or anywhere, in a VR headset teleported into base camp at Mount Everest. And everyone is interacting as virtual avatars. So at base camp, we added this big screen, a projector screen, like at a conference, and we have a mountaineer uh, who's actually climbed Everest, give the kind of kickoff keynote, just like you would at a conference about their journey up Everest and the challenges that they had along the way and how that links to 
certain themes that we want to discuss in the experience. Um, a lot of times the story involves the Kumbu Icefall, which is the very first piece of climbing Everest. It's crossing this big glacier. And that's what the next part of the experience is. So after the speaker finishes with this very empowering, uh, exciting speech, leaves everyone with the key themes, but actually gives them a chance to practice those themes by then teleporting everyone in the audience into the first step in climbing Everest, crossing that Kumbu Icefall Glacier. And the way you get across these these glaciers and the crevasses in these glaciers, the cracks in the ice, is with these ladders they put across these big fissures and crevasses in the ice, and you have to walk across those ladders. So functionally, what the audience then gets a chance to do is you're, you're just walking in a straight line on your living room floor, your office floor, but it feels like you are walking across this ladder spanning this 200 foot deep crevasse hmm. that if you fall, you're going to fall to your death. And it creates the same emotional reaction that the speaker was talking about just moments before in their speech that was inspiring the audience to be able to you know, push past their perceived limits, get out of their comfort zone. But now you actually get the chance as the audience to then put that into practice because you're feeling the same emotions that the speaker was then just describing. So once you feel those emotions, uh, your logical part of your brain kind of shuts down. Your emotional part of your brain tells you, why am I doing this? This is mm -hmm. stupid. And then we help people practice pushing through that, getting across, using the support of their teammates uh, who are on the other side, cheering them on, as well as their own uh, ability to you know, take another step on their living room floor, which we keep reminding them is perfectly safe. Um, and when they get to the other side, you feel the sense of empowerment, even though you were never in any physical danger. And that emotional connection of a challenge, pushing through the challenge and the empowerment on the other side turns the message of the speech into something that was about someone else and is now about you. So from a memory standpoint, it solidifies it that much stronger. And then we do a little bit of a debrief to connect the themes of the speech back to the emotions you felt. And when you walk away from it, it's, it's similar to the impact of a really powerful keynote speech, but way more sticky and impactful because it was applied to you directly with an actual emotional reaction. Um, so it doesn't necessarily matter what the company is building. You walk away with this renewed sense of empowerment uh, to be able to you know, maybe make that big process change you were scared to make before, scared your boss would um, you know, get mad at you for messing up or you know, whatever that fear that is directly relevant to the thing you do at your company is you have a little bit more um, you know, firepower to be able to reassess that fear and, and push through it. I love the fact that you set this up, Marshall, as, as creating a story. Uh, I've done uh, maybe a hundred VR experiences myself. And, and it strikes me that crafting that story is so important. And it's even better the way you describe it, where you have the Sherpa or whoever, the climber, has who has actually done the real thing so it's it's immediately projecting you into the reality of it and then you 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 create this experience which is such the better best form of learning because we all know that experience is the best teacher so i i think that that's a it's a phenomenal process that you put through the question then I have is, how do you integrate that into the situation at work? So, oh, I'm, I'm worried about my boss not being able to do that. The, the, this shared experience, how do you move from this VR experience to a in-office or, or remote for that matter, working through the fears and the issues, let's say with innovation or whatever? Yeah, so there's definitely ways that we're we're working on consistently following up, doing multiple experiences, and re kind of rechecking in on those themes. But the way that we directly integrate it into the main experience is we're all together as a team of uh, you know usually about twenty to fifty. Fifty is the maximum amount of people we can have in one virtual environment from a technical limitation standpoint. Mm -hmm. So let's say we have a team of 50. Um, everyone will be together in Basecamp, listening to the keynote and together in that group, just like you were at a conference room. But when we go into the activity part of the experience into the crevasse crossing, we break everyone up into groups of five. So each group of five has their own facilitator and has their own experience, uh, their, own, their own version of the crevasse that they get to cross. So you get the luxury of this small group of people with a facilitator that's guiding that group through the experience 
And we can be a little bit more personalized in terms of the facilitator asking really targeted, uh, powerful facilitation questions that hopefully get that group of five people to open up and share what the crevasse represents in the challenges that they have, uh, both in work and sometimes in life in general. Um, and then we can have a discussion around the similarities uh, of being able to cross that crevasse in, in virtual reality and being able to cross the crevasse of whatever challenge um, that person had brought up uh, and linked to the experience. So we, we can uh, associate visually the crevasse in people's minds with the challenge and lead a little bit of a small group discussion around um, how it links together and being able to, able to overcome that. And then when we come back together uh, after the crevasse, we're teleported back to base camp. Everyone's in the big group of 50 again. And then people can share, individual groups can share the things that were most powerful from a takeaway perspective from them and do a bit of a giant group debrief uh, facilitation as well before finishing up. So we try and have the best of both of the large group setting and the small group settings to be able to um, have some of those more specific discussions. That is phenomenal, Marshall. I really, I, I'm living it as you speak uh, through this and I'm imagining the power of that facilitation. What, in my experience, I've seen is that when you do your, as you used to do, the live experiences, you know, and jumping off a precipice into a, a pool 30 meters below, that that is there there's truly a life uh threatening danger in that one which we are going up against like you were explaining in your situation where you're you got all tangled up and and spiraling out of control which you know that 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 must give heart palpitations at another level yet as you you and i were talking beforehand and as i know that experience in vr can make your heart palpitate oh so much and the sweaty palms and all that I, I remember many situations like that. But one of the things that I, I feel is powerful in what you're doing is I, I, there's so many people that are disengaged at work. They're just doing the thing. And by allowing people to have a, a raw experience where they're actually saying, you know, I am shit scared of heights or I, I am worried about tarantulas or whatever my phobia might be. And expressing that, which is deeply personal in a professional space is, is sort of what you're getting at. Exactly. Yeah, it, it really does personalize the experience and the challenge in a way that oftentimes isn't brought up in the workforce. Uh, I think a lot of times uh, there is a, a bit of a lack of uh, vulnerability and a willingness to bring up those personal challenges, which directly impacts our you know, ability to, to do our work as well. So there's, there's definitely a component of, um, of some of Brene Brown's work on vulnerability and bringing out some of those, uh, the willingness to share some of those personal challenges and phobias uh, and uh, incorporating that into the, the conversation for sure. I've had a lot of experience talking to veterans of war. And, uh, and one of the things that certainly came out of that is that there's a stiff upper lip component to dealing with shit. And uh, when it comes to uh, manning up, if you will, to use a, a obviously a masculine idea, when it, you, you're up against a, a big, big issue, a big enemy, you don't have much time for or place for vulnerability. Yet, I understand when you talk to the SEALs who are those band of brothers that have, or, you know, band of teammates to be a little less, um, you know, limiting in sex, gender, to go through those things. Actually, the best teams are the ones that actually have expressed vulnerabilities to one another is that something that you are specifically trying to foster even in the hardest core, you know, teams and, you know, very much very efficiency, effectiveness, performance-based people and allowing them to have that specifically from the top down? Of course. Yeah, definitely. And it's, uh, it's not always an easy thing. Like you mentioned, when, when you have um, uh, teams that, that are a bit more, you know, you know, hard and, and not, kind of willing to um, you know, let their guard down, but it, it's definitely something we encourage. And we, we always recommend that the 
the leader of the organization is the first one to uh, exhibit that, display that, and that kind of gives everyone else uh, a bit of um, a you know, unspoken permission to to uh, also you know, share that. Um, yeah, it's you know they feel the same way. It may be challenging for them too, or they may be feeling this way or that that they wouldn't have shared before. And if we can get leadership to to do that first, it makes it much uh, easier for everyone else to follow suit. Something I caught in one of your uh, podcasts as I was preparing for our chat was you said that fun means sustainability. Really thinking about when you're doing these activities, there's also an element of entertainment. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, there's, there is a component of leadership development and team building that immediately gets people um, you know, kind of on their guard and and not really excited. Um, you know, the typical, you know, oh man, we're gonna go do a ropes course trust fall again with our team. Uh, you know, it it's gotta be it's gotta be fun and it's gotta be engaging first uh, for those sustainable outcomes to um, have the uh, the ability to uh, to happen and present themselves. So I, I really believe in experiences that aren't just impactful, um, but that are also fun. And, and the fun element creates a higher level of impact because of the higher level of buy-in and excitement uh, from the, um, the people that are going through it. So with regard to these VR experiences and what you're doing at Vestigo, how do you improve remote teams? Is there, what, is there something specific or another story that you do that allows for remote teams to work better? Give us a little bit of the angle of, of how to improve remote work. Yeah, so so all, all of these ones that I've described are are actually um, uh, you know both for remote teams and in person teams. It, it works especially well for remote teams because everyone is physically in a separate, you know, distant environment uh, that's not together. Sometimes they haven't even met their coworkers. So the ability to be able to interact with the people they've talked to, you know, virtually in a way that feels like you're in the same space in virtual reality, it really does feel like you were looking at a person uh, that's making facial expressions and hand gestures, and you feel like you're together in person in a way that you haven't felt um, because of the remote um, component of your team. It, it adds another uh, dynamic of, um, uh, of impact from the relationship building side, but but most uh, and sorry if I didn't clarify this before. Uh, most teams we work with are remote teams. That's really the the um, the, oh, the big opportunity uh, for us in the sense that in person teams do have the luxury of being able to get together in person and do some of these types of activities in the real world, which creates that same level of impact. Remote teams don't have that luxury. So virtual reality is really their only solution unless they want to fly everyone together in person. So that's really the um, uh, the main focus for us, being able to create these opportunities for remote teams or for hybrid remote teams where some people are together and some people aren't. When you are doing the, the brief with a client, uh, let's say the CEO of a remote team or whoever, uh, what are the what's the component that's going to make this the most successful in that conversation with the the CEO or the head of HR, who whomever you got in front of you? What do they need to have in terms of the right mindset for this to be successful? Yeah, well, the the first thing uh, in terms of when we're we're talking to a company before we started the experience and working with you know the CEO or the head of HR or L and D. Um, the, the first thing that they have to understand is how virtual reality works. And mm. a lot of people have not tried the latest VR headsets. Um, if you've tried a VR headset two or three years ago, then you haven't tried a VR headset. Like it's that mm. different. It's not like mm -hmm. a smartphone a couple of years ago and a smartphone now. And it's mm. completely complete. It's like, it's like comparing a suitcase, uh, you know, phone from like the eighties to an <laughs> iPhone, it's just completely, completely different and so much better. So the first thing that we do is we actually ship out a VR headset to um, kind of the main decision maker or, you know, a couple people on the team so that we can all meet in virtual reality. So we can actually have uh, a bit of a demo of the experience and have our meeting together in VR in the same way that we would with the actual team. And that's usually the first uh, big kind of aha moment that people have who have not tried the latest VR uh, in being able to see what's, um, uh, what's possible with it. So that's the first step. But the next step is 
a general understanding of um, what their team needs um, and uh, what themes we, we want to instill in the teams. We can use the same experiences to teach different themes in, in different ways based on uh, the story we tell and, and the way we connect the dots. Um, so we, we do really like working with very um, you know, observant um, and aware leaders who, who know that um, you know, our team has an issue with communication. Uh, or, you know, our team just will not take a risk. Like they having some insight into what exactly mm. is the specific thing we need to work the on crevice. the team is, is extremely mm -hmm. helpful. Right. What that crevice is, if they're just like, oh, we just want a chance for everyone to get together. That's fine. It's just not going to be quite as impactful because uh, we, we don't know what that main problem is with the team. And we're just sort of taking a shot in the dark. So. How many experiences do you have? I mean, I, I, I'm guessing you have more than just the, the, the Everest experience. Yeah, so we, we have three main experiences, um, but uh, the Everest one is the first experience where everyone is together in a virtual environment. The other experiences, um, uh, we, we can't have everyone together. Uh, we have a uh -huh. few people together in different rooms. Then we use Zoom to bring everyone together uh, if we have a larger team, whereas Everest is the first one where we can actually, it's the first one that, that we actually developed in-house that allows everyone to be together in the same environment. Uh, whereas to, to give an example of some of the other ones, uh, we've got um, some uh, experiences that teach communication under pressure really well with this bomb defusal experience huh. that is um uh it's only what's called a, a single player experience so only one person is in the headset at a time and the rest of the team is on zoom so let's say we have 50 people uh for this company well we would uh everyone would still have their own headset but we'd break everyone up into zoom rooms uh breakout rooms of five people each and then only one person would put on the headset at a time that person sees this time bomb in front of them with all these buttons and wires but no idea what to do and then the other four people have access to the instruction manual and it's their job to decode the instruction manual, figure out what the person on the headset is seeing and tell them the right instructions on how to decode it. And then each person gets a chance to be the diffuser in the hot seat in VR, but we rotate through that. And then each team uh, is a bit of a competition against the other teams to see who can get the fastest time. But we do have to use Zoom uh, as the main connection tool, even though VR is still the experiential tool. So some are a little bit different, um, but uh, we've got about three or four different ones. Well, really, with VR, your scope of possibilities is so much bigger relative to doing in real life, where we actually have to deal with legal ramifications if somebody slips and breaks a leg or something. You're, exactly. I mean, I suppose you still have the risk of someone having a heart attack because of the reality of the virtual situation. So you, you were talking about the, the uh, changes in VR, and I haven't had an experience in two years, so I'm thinking now I haven't done VR, despite having done a lot before. Characterize where we are and what will be the future of VR. Where are, the, where are we in the developments of VR? Because obviously you're at the forefront. Yeah, so a really great book and movie uh, to watch to give a good sense for what the future of VR could look like is Ready Player One. Fantastic book, oh, yeah. really good movie. Steven Spielberg came out a few years ago. Uh, highly recommend watching that and reading the book, which is even better, of course. Uh, that's a good portrayal of what the future of this tech could look like. Uh, we're not quite there yet, but we're getting close. So the, the big challenge with virtual reality historically has been having a headset that doesn't require an external computer to process the graphics. Um, up until about two or three years ago, the only real virtual reality headsets needed to have an external computer that was physically plugged into it um, to power the graphics. And a lot of headsets had to have these sensors in the four corners of the room mm -hmm. called lighthouses to be able to pick up where you are. Now, all of that stuff is baked into the headset itself. The sensors are on the outside of the headset. Processing power is all in the headset. All you need is a space to be able to move around in yourself in the headset. And that's it. Um, so because the transition from computer powered to mobile was so important, they did sacrifice a little bit on the quality. So the quality of the mobile headsets is not up to par of the quality of the PC powered ones, but it's made it so much more accessible to, you know, 99% of the audience who doesn't know how to 
you know, buy a big gaming computer and hook it up and install these lighthouses. And they just need to have a device to put it on. So that's kind of where we are now. And now that mobile device is getting better and better and better to the point where it's eventually going to be as good uh, and eventually better than the computer processed ones, uh, probably through 5G technology. So being able to offload the processing power in the cloud on much more powerful computers and stream it to the headset with super low latency to so the point where you can't tell that there's any type mm. of delay. Um, that will be the big game changer for mobile headsets that have the ease of use, but the processing power of the really advanced ones. And then eventually, uh, omnidirectional treadmills will kind of be the next thing that creates the next level of immersion. Right now, you can't really run around in virtual reality, uh, at least not very far without running into your wall unless you have a big <laughs> warehouse to move around in. So having these omnidirectional treadmills um, where you're stationary, but it feels like you're actually running, you're in this harness in this bowl-shaped treadmill that moves in all directions, uh, that'll be kind of the next game changer for movement in virtual reality. And then as it gets better and better and better, it starts becoming indistinguishable uh, from real real life. And you know, that's when we get to the level of the matrix, if we ever get there uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, some people actually have the argument that we're already in a simulation because the probability that we've already created it is higher than the probability that we're just about to create it. Um, mm. But that's a whole nother conversation. Well, beautiful. I, I, um, I, I did the experience of being buried uh, as in died and, and being buried with a VR set. And um, to make it interesting, they did it uh, mixed where you are, you have a, a mud or earth that actually is thrown on top of you. Oh, wow. So you see it, you feel it. And when you combine these sensations, boy, does it feel, uh, you know, even realer. And so I've been, I've been enjoy, I've enjoyed people who are crafting stories where you can feel the wind, for example, you you know there's a lot of wind, but you're just you're not being pushed back. So they they are, they have a big fan to push you, or you're in a you're put in a swing of a parachute, and you're you're dangling, and so you you you're getting closer and closer to that real feeling by having physical components to make it mixed and. And I think it's uh, awfully powerful and great souvenirs. Marshall, my, our time is up. I feel like just beginning, damn it. Um, <laughs> so wonderful to have you on, Marshall. I really appreciate it. I, I would love for people to go and check out what you're doing with this, uh, bringing real experiences into the corporate space. So what would be the best way for people to get in touch with you guys, find out what you're up to? sign up and maybe even follow you because i know you have quite the instagram following of course yeah well people can definitely reach out to me personally on instagram at marshall mosher uh and of course they can go to our website um which is vestigo.co just dot co uh either way uh reach out shoot me a message more than happy to help and answer any questions whether it's uh virtual reality adventure related or both and uh thanks so much for having me on the show i really appreciate it Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on minterdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote. It's Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. I like the feel of a stranger Tucked around me, precipitating the danger To feel free, trust is a reason Still I won't tell the lie I sit here passively, hope for your respect Anticipating the thrill of your intellect Maybe I tell myself, there's no use in me lying I'm a convinced man building an urge. I'm a convinced man to live and die.
Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year hard rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.